0: This is recording. RTI
1: International Center Forensic Science presents Just
2: Science.
0: Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the last episode of Just Science, Dr. Barbara Ray Venter shared her techniques for creating family trees and discussed the resolution of her first cold case. In episode 5 of The DNA Season, we continue that conversation. In February 2017, Forensic Magazine published an article detailing the Bear Brook murders, an abandoned girl, and Ray Venter's involvement in the resolution of a cold case that tied them all together. One month later, she was contacted by investigator Paul Holes and was on the hunt yet again. Listen along as she discusses building a profile and explains how she used investigative genetic genealogy to identify the Golden State Killer. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan
1: and welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I am John Morgan, your host. I'm with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice, and we're very grateful to NIJ for the funding of FTCOE and this podcast episode. Uh, The FTCOE is operated by RTI International. Today, our guest is Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, who has a PhD from UC San Diego, and is a genetic genealogist and volunteer search angel with dnaadoption.com. She's helped many adopted people find their genetic parents and has now actually, through uh, her work with dnaadoption.com, extended that to be helping in very particular kinds of criminal cases. First, starting with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, uh, Crimes Against Children Detail, Welcome to Just Science, Barbara. Well, thank you. So that's quite a first case for you.
2: It was a little different.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and after, after you had gotten into that, I assume, it raised some notoriety.
2: Well, what happened is because it was so unusual and, you know, as I said, actually, you know, finding who Lisa's mother was then led to solving a cold case. Right. That got written up in Forensic Magazine. So that was published in February of 2017. And Paul Hole saw it in March of 2017 and gave me a call and said, so you can identify Lisa and she did, you didn't know anything about her. Can you help with one of my cold cases?
1: <laughs> sure. Why not? I mean, yeah. Well, you know what I, th- I think is really interesting in the sense that it's a different way of thinking. You're approaching these issues from a way that's that's kind of, it's new to how law enforcement and forensic science have generally approached things. It's kind of how you might look at it from a if you were doing an intelligence operation, mm-hmm. right? And so that kind of broader or fewer assumptions right. can be enormously powerful.
2: Well, as an example, with the Golden State Killer, you've got location. Right. So you start doing matches. So, you know, the matches are in New York, the matches are wherever, but you know you don't want to be in New York. He wasn't commuting from New York.
1: <laughs> did the investigators have um, a DNA profile from the Golden State Killer on which to rely? Or were or you looking at the victims and trying to find some commonalities from the victims.
2: We had an interesting situation. So they actually had done a number of years ago, they'd actually done a profile with Parabon. And so they actually had a profile, but I wasn't allowed to see it. The folks who were running this particular case, I actually had quite a heated conversation with Steve Kramer of the FBI because I said, you know what, you want me to identify somebody and you won't give me any information, I need to have something to go on. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be helpful,
1: right, actual information. And so...
2: They were adamant that they could not give me any information. And so I ended up spending a lot of time, you know, reading. And, of course, there's a lot of ink on this guy. So sure. there actually was a lot of stuff in the newspapers. And so I just built my profile out of stuff I could find in the newspapers. Then, of course, once I got the DNA, I could get the ethnicity and the eye color and stuff like that.
1: I see. So you were able to piece together a fair amount, but not you weren't able to go the entire way without having the genetics. and.
2: Oh, no. I, in fact, it, was, it turned out to be good that I didn't have their information because their information was wrong. As an example, the Parabon profile had that he had green eyes. He very definitely did not have blue. They had him as 10% Southern Mediterranean, and the rest was Western European and uh, Northern European. Mm -hmm. When I ran his his admixture on GEDmatch, I came back as being 40% Southern European, which, of course, is correct. He's, He's half Italian. And then the facial description of him is completely off. So I was actually better off not having seen any of that because what I eventually identified him on was his eye color because according to Jedmatch and according to Prometheus, he had blue eyes. And, of course, at the very end, what we did is we were down to six candidates, and so they pulled the DMV records to get eye color. Only one guy had blue eyes, and that was Joseph D'Angelo. Right. If we'd gone with green, we'd have gotten his brother.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> you were been close, at least. <laughs> would have been close. Well, I guess that's kind of a cautionary tale, too, in the sense that you do need to, you do need to be able to realize that some of the techniques are, are more accurate than others. There is some variability right. with respect to what the techniques are going to be telling you at this stage. There's nothing... Well, and I think this is almost always going to be the case because I don't think we're nearly as simple as we... Uh, our genetics are nearly as simple as is made out. It's
2: very oh, complex. Not. No, th- and for for many of these things, there are multiple genes that are controlling you know, various phenotypic information. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I, I did two, two things. I did jet match. I did Prometheus, figuring, sure. you know, if they're both coming back the same, then there's a good chance that it's correct. Right. Um, if they come back being different, then, yeah, you have a cautionary as to whether or which one was correct.
1: So you're going to be giving a presentation on Friday about the Golden State uh, case.
2: Right. Why don't
1: you just go through kind of what you're going to be talking to uh, the American Academy of Forensic Science folks here about with respect to the Golden State killing and how that was investigated using your techniques.
2: What What I'm going to do is just sort of go through describing how we got to this point. So some of the stuff we've already talked about, which is, you know, starting off with having done Lisa, and then having done Terry Rasmussen, yeah. who was the abductor, and then going into how using that exact same technique, then, you know, did the same thing with the Golden State Killer. And a little bit on how I ended up being hooked up with Paul Holes, because he had seen that article in Forensic Magazine on the connection then between identifying Lisa's mother and then, of course, solving the Allenstown 4 motors. So at that point, I didn't just go into talking about how I approach doing these kind of cases. Every single one, the first thing I do is I sit down and I run the admixture. So I get information on what the ethnicity looks like for this particular person.
1: So obviously, we know now it's Joseph D'Angelo. So were you able to do the admixture on D'Angelo's De- DNA?
2: Right. So in JedMatch. There are actually multiple utilities you can use. I just, for sake of, of consistency, regardless of what I have or what I find, I run the same one. I run what's called Eurogenes 13. And so it gives me a pie chart showing me various kinds of, of ethnic mixtures. They can run from southern Mediterranean, Baltic, North Sea, which is basically you know Ireland, UK, and anything that's you know, bordering the North Sea, and then, f- so from that, you can get some information then for when you're building your trees as to whether or not you're hitting the right, right folks. Sure. So for D'Angelo, we discovered fairly quickly that his family had to have been relatively recent immigrants from Italy. Because I think, I think Paul said we, we had something like 24 trees that we built. But what would happen with them is with a lot of them, they would dead end very quickly we would end up in New York and then immediately head back to Italy. So let's, let's
1: stop there. 24 trees built. So what kind of trees are you building at this point? Are these theoretical?
2: I guess we should back up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the first step is obviously to get a step file. And so the step file that we, ha- that we had that was procured by um, Steve, uh, Steve Kramer from the FBI and Paul Holes and we were using a semen sample from uh, Ventura County. And we had really lucked out because it turned out that the pathologist had a procedure that he used where he always did two samples. And he would put one away that he would not touch, and the other one he would do you no know, CODIS or whatever other testing he was gonna do on that one. So there was a sample there completely untouched. It'd been sitting there for, what, 30 years.
1: From one of the victims from that had, the victims, had been right. autopsied. Well, it was,
2: it was one of the Ventura County victims, yeah. Yeah. That was very fortunate. We, so it was in very good shape, and so we were able to get a really good SNP profile. So we upload that to GedMatch, and of course, any time that you're trying to upload something, it typically takes anywhere between, or at least at the time, it would take 24 or 48 hours to get matching. So, you know, you're going back checking and checking and checking <laughs> to see, <laughs> right, see yeah. if there's anything here, there yet. And so, finally, the matches showed up, and our biggest match was only 60 centimorgans. So, a parent-child match is 3,500 centimorgans. A second cousin is about 240. I see. So, 60 is, mm, if it's we're lucky. It's pretty remote. If, yeah, we're, if we're lucky, it's maybe a third cousin once removed or a fourth cousin, but it could be even more distant. So, that was not exciting. All we could do, though, was just, you know, start building trees for these matches. What you do is you then look for information that you can find anywhere. You know, some people, they'll already have a tree posted someplace. So there might even be a tree posted on GEDmatch, or they might have a tree posted in in Ancestry or in MyHeritage. Uh, So you go around, you see if you can find any trees anywhere. Um, If you can't find any trees, and you Google them you know, try and find obituaries for family members. You go on to being verified and look at who their family members are. Okay.
1: Um, so let me let me make sure I get the procedure right. So you had built 24 trees off of 24 different matches? Correct. Okay. All of which were going more and more distant than 67? Correct. Okay.
2: Um, so. I mean, we know at the get-go we're going to be building a lot of trees because we're going to have to try and find trees that will intersect. Right. And so you're going to build a lot of trees before you find that happening. So... What you can do is there are some tools that you can use to look for people who match each other. And so at the time, the tools that I used were on a site called dnajetcom.com. It's actually a sister site to DNA adoption. And the tools on there were actually originally developed to help adoptees find their birth relatives. Well, this is an unknown parentage case. So the tools on there are perfect for doing that. Right. Go in there and you can, well, at the time, you can't do it now because it's been changed. But at the time, we could do a cut and paste of all the matches on GEDmatch into the DNA GEDcom site and then look for people who matched each other. And also you've got two copies of each chromosome. And so when you're looking for matches, you'll have people that will have overlapping segments, but you don't know when you're looking at the overlapping segments, whether they're matching each other on the same chromosome. So say both matching on the the paternal, say, copy of chromosome three, Mm -hmm. or one's matching on the maternal copy and one's matching on the paternal copy. So there is a tool on uh, the DNA GEDCOM site, which allows you to look at that. And so you can then look for people who are matching each other on the same segment of DNA. And then you can look for people who are matching on opposite sides of the tree. Because mm-hmm. you want to build trees for both. And so you then you know, build out your trees as much as you can, hoping that you're going to find some people. You know Theoretically, there should be connections because these people have inherited DNA from a common ancestor. Sure, it's just a case of how far back are you going to run into common names and know that you're on the right track.
1: But it's also got to be close enough to be worthwhile, right? You know, I remember reading at one point that almost all the presidents were within six or seven cousins of each other, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so at some point, it's you have to have it have to be really reasonably close in order for the information not to be just too distant to even be worthwhile, right?
2: Well, what you end up doing, and what we ended up doing with D'Angelo, was actually doing what we call target testing. Because uh-huh. when you're when you that far out, yeah, you don't know whether you're even in the in the right ballpark. Right. In this particular case, as I mentioned, the several of the trees would just bottom out. They would head back to Italy. None of us read Italian. None of us knew how to search Italian records. The Italian records, a lot of them have been scanned, but not digitized. Okay. And so... To make it even more onerous, of course, you were having to wade through you know, foreign records manually. And so I tried that for a while and decided that just was not going to cut the program.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, the other thing, I don't, I'm sure you all thought of through all of this before I did, uh, is that there actually has been, have been an enormous number of Italian immigrants, though, here in the United States. And so I doubt if there's too many family trees in Italy that don't have some kind of, of connection here in the United States.
2: Well, that may be true, but we have no way of figuring out which, which those are. Sure. Um, and, you know, this is a highly confidential project. So you can't just wander up to anybody and say, gee, can you help with us? Right. So what we ended up doing was uh, focusing on the Irish, or the, well, I guess he had a UK ancestry, which we were able to build regular trees for. And then we were able to come up with some potential candidates At that point, we knew that we were looking for somebody who was potentially, I think it was a third cousin. Um, And so what we did is we did some target testing. And so we, not me, but the law enforcement, contacted a couple of people about doing some consensual testing and told them, you know, what we were trying to do, and they agreed to test. And so uh, we tested them, and uh, one of them, we were very lucky, she came out as a second cousin match. Wow. So that suddenly... You're way
1: closer now. (laughs) We're way
2: closer. But it was even better than that. She had an X chromosome match. Okay. And men only have one X chromosome, which they get from their mother. Right. So we now knew that that UK ancestry was the maternal line and that the one that kept heading back to Italy had to be the paternal line. So um, when we when we did the target testing, we had had a list. And the target
1: testing was based on the trees that you had built.
2: Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know. So you all were it, choosing
1: basically targets that were like key targets within those trees that could help you with the uh...
2: Right. I run what are called kinship reports. So I use genealogy software to do that. And again, you're, you're looking for people that are in the right geographic area. So you, it's not completely blind. We know that we want somebody in California. We potentially need somebody in Northern California, but we're not really willing to totally gamble on that. We limited the geography to being just somebody who was in California. So we looked for people of the appropriate relationship in California. Um, and of course, we're only looking for guys. At that point, we had a list of nine nine men who were our candidates. And so, when we did the target testing, we then were, had our list down to six candidates. Right. At that point, we did the eye color. Bingo. Bingo. One guy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then it's then it's more traditional law enforcement investigation. So yeah, that so that
2: so yeah, so I mean, I, I send off my little email, and the next morning I get a, a phone call from Steve Kramer and one of the other agents in the uh, FBI in Los Angeles, and he goes, "So how sure are you?" And I said, "Well, you know, assuming that we managed to put in all of the people who are the descendants of our common ancestor in our tree, I'm sure." And of course, I don't know that they've got this stuff that says the guy's got green eyes, right?
1: Right. <laughs> probably why they called you
2: I don't hear anything else after that until they call me the morning they're doing the press release they can't tell me anything right I mean I'm a civilian so I don't get to, to learn anything it was a real shock to find out that you know they'd gone out they'd done their surveillance they'd gotten their uh, that actually had two two surreptitious DNA samples and they'd already run the matching I mean they really moved that along turning their stuff around that fast it was incredible and got confirmation that it was him right so that was cool
1: that's that's very very cool, Barbara. That's that's that, that, that's very very high on the cool index. And uh, now was he and was he still living at that time? Is he still alive? D'Angelo. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. When he was arraigned, you know, he shows up in court in a wheelchair. When they were surveilling him, he was riding his motorcycle on the freeway at hundred miles an hour.
1: Sure. Yeah.
2: There's nothing wrong with him. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. How many victims had he had by the time he was caught? Do we that, know? that
2: we know of? There were 50-plus rape victims and 13 murders. Wow. And then there's well over 100 burglaries.
1: It's astounding to me because that's a lot. And so he was never caught and put into the DNA index over all those crimes.
2: He hasn't been really sweating it because his brother got arrested in Los Angeles on a DUI, but it was before California was putting all felony arrests into CODIS. Sure. So he had been really worried that his brother would get picked up again. But, yeah, it didn't happen. So, yeah, he was never on anybody's radar.
1: But you got him.
2: We got him. Well, I had a lot of help, so.
1: I want to talk about one more case, and that is a a case that is in our neck of the woods in North Carolina that you also helped solve here recently. So tell me about the North Carolina case. What what was the, uh, there was a victim found, a skeletonized victim at this point who was found in North Carolina. When was the body found?
2: Uh, this is a 20-year-old cold case. So this one, I uh, was a, a young boy, uh, probably around 10 years old, just been thrown beside the road. There was a lot of weeds, and so his body was not found until he was skeletonized, yeah. It was found by a mowing crew that were you know, going along the highway mowing the side there. They couldn't really tell anything about this kid. They'd done a number of different things. They'd done a pollen analysis, and they'd done... Uh, some isotope analysis. And so they'd actually come down with a pretty narrow area of where this kid had to have been living, both throughout his life and also just before he had died. And it was where the four states come together, this very narrow area. It was kind of interesting. And so when we were sort of looking at it, I have a little group of folks from our local genealogy society that help work on some of these cases. And so this is one that we all sort of discussed. So the immediate theory that people came up with is that it was probably, there were a number of uh, military bases around there. And you know, was it possible that he was you know, somehow associated with one of the military bases? The case had been originally one that uh, Parabon was working on and uh, they had, it had not passed their criteria for being close enough matches in order for them to continue working on it. Somewhat ironically, they had only uploaded to the original uh, GEDmatch site. There's now a new site called Genesis which was set up to accommodate the new chips. They're called GSA chips that are used by 23andMe and also by Living DNA, because they could not upload to the original site. And so now what JetMatch has done is they've migrated all of, the, all of the kits over to Genesis, but all new uploads are only going into Genesis. For whatever reason, the Parabon kits were not migrating. And so I contacted them and said, you know, could we please have them upload the kit to Genesis? And when they did that, there was what looked like a first cousin once removed match, which was amazing because it suggested that the person who matched this child must be a child of a sibling of that person's parent. And the other thing, of course, that I had done, which is what I do first on any of these cases, is I had done the admixture, and this one had come back to being 50% Caucasian, 50% Asian. And from the Uh, information from Parabon, they had done a Y-DNA haplogroup, which had come back, I think was R1B, which is Caucasian, so we knew that the dad was white and the mother was Asian. So I contacted the, the detective on this case, and I said, well, you should be able to get a really quick answer on this one by calling the parent of the person who tested finding out if, if any of their siblings have a biracial child, and it was kind of an interesting case because when I had originally taken it on, the detective had shared with me that he was going to be retiring at the end of the year, and so he had wanted to know if we could solve it by the end of the year, and this was now the beginning of December, and I would said, well, you know, we would sure try, but, you know, couldn't promise anything, so obviously he was very inspired to get things moving, so he immediately called the parent of this person who'd matched and of course the father of the match says well yeah he had a brother who'd been stationed in Korea had a Korean wife and yeah oh well you know haven't seen little Bobby in a long time.
1: Sure and 20 years I bet.
2: 20 years and so then of course the question was well you know so why didn't anybody report him missing? Well we thought he'd gone back to Korea with his mom so then of course the question was well where's mom? And it turns out that there had been an Asian woman's body had been found in South Carolina, unidentified. And so, of course, that then got tested. And sure enough, that was mom. And so suddenly we've managed to solve not one but two cases. And the following pieces I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I can talk about other than that we do know who the perpetrator is. But, yeah, so it was pretty cool. We did it really fast. And the detective was able to retire having solve not one, but two cases.
1: Well, and uh, I can tell you on behalf of everybody in North Carolina, we're very grateful for oh, your thank you. help in that regard. I want to take a step back before we close, because I want to ask you a, a difficult question for us. And that is, again, going back to how forensic science normally operates, it's, it's you put a profile into CODIS and it either matches or it doesn't. And if it doesn't match, that means that person never got caught up in the criminal justice system in one way or another they got their DNA profile into, into CODIS. But with your technique, it doesn't have to end there, does it?
2: No, in fact, it's, it allows you now to, if you've met that dead end, it gives you another option now to be able to identify people.
1: And that's really different. There's obviously privacy implications. I mean, there, it was a huge fight for the DNA index to even be built the way it has been. In the sense that, you know, you have all felons and you have other folks who are being put into the DNA index. And even it's, as you know, it only includes STRs, uh, which are of only certain value with respect to how you might do the kind of work that you're doing. Should we be changing how we view DNA identification?
2: I'm coming at it from a little different angle than some people because I came in from doing unknown parentage cases. and. Nobody has gotten upset about using all of the databases, all of the direct-to-consumer databases, uh, by adoptees, people who were donor-conceived, people who were foundlings, people who were like Lisa, who were you know, victims of crime. All of those people, as long as they're alive, can spit in a tube, or do a cheek swab, they can use any of those databases. And to me, they can potentially cause more problems than doing identification of an unknown victim or identifying a suspect in a crime. Sure. So I actually don't see the privacy implications because if the folks who are living can do this stuff, I don't see why the folks who are dead can't have the same rights.
1: Sure. So to some extent, I, w- I want you to do another, another training. I want I to take the training you've got, but I want you to do another training. I want you to do a training for how to, how to apply the principles of investigative genetic genealogy to a new way of looking at DNA investigations. I mean, it seems like we should be working very differently on these cases that don't have matches than what we do now, or at least we should be considering it.
2: One of the thoughts is what happens, particularly with, say, rape homicide, you've typically only got, say, one DNA sample, maybe not a very big sample, and so by the time you've gotten through doing CODIS and you know, some of the related testing, quite often you've used up your sample. So if you go to the CODIS well and you come back dry, you're dead in the water. So one of the things that is being floated around is maybe instead of just immediately just doing CODIS, is that you do what's called whole genome sequencing. Right. And so when you do whole genome sequencing, of course, you get the whole... The whole, whole shebang. The whole shebang. That's the word I needed. <laughs> so you can get the SGR markers. You can get the SNPs. You can get the Y-DNA and the mitochondrial DNA haplogroups. You can even get the Y-DNA that may be a way that things will go in the future. I'm sure there'll be a lot of resistance because obviously there's been a lot of effort put into doing the CODIS system, Right. and if suddenly that's not your first port of call, as it were, that may be a little little different. What I'm finding also though, I I work very closely with the law enforcement people whose cases they are, and I actually put them to work helping build trees, and they're very good at it because it's actually not that different from some of the research that they already do. Sure. So they just happen to be, you know, working in, you know, a family tree da- database, you know, building a tree on Ancestry uh, instead of looking for people in, I don't know what the local search engines are called here, but in California, I think it's TLO, but they're, they're used to working through those kinds of databases looking for family members. So it's not that different.
1: Well, Barbara, you have challenged me enormously. I, I really, really have enjoyed our conversation today. You've and we only talked about some really interesting cases, but some also interesting ways of approaching forensic science and investigation that we that I, I really had not fully thought through. So I appreciate the uh, interesting and challenging conversation today. And uh, thank you for being on Just Science.
2: Well, you're very welcome.
1: Now, I also want to thank all of our listeners for uh, listening in. Please make sure that you uh, tell your uh, friends and colleagues about Just Science and uh, encourage them not only to listen to these interesting podcasts, but also to take advantage of all the resources of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence on www.forensiccoe.org. Thank you very much.
0: Next week, Just Science interviews Leslie Park and Jamie Haas about increasing sexual assault kit workflow efficiency through automation. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.